Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I am Aaron Watson. Thank you so much for listening. If you have not yet, hit that subscribe button. Please make sure you do so so that you can stay up to date on all forthcoming episodes. We have got a really exciting docket of episodes and interviews coming your way in the near future. So please remember to do that, whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you are. I appreciate the influx of five-star reviews that have come in recently. Thank you, everyone out there who has been dropping the five-star reviews. I really appreciate that. Today's guest is Eric Brown of Impact Games. So this is going to be the first video game creator that we've ever had on the show. And a common thought when people think of video games are sports or shoot-em-up or adventure-type games. But Eric approaches the industry from a different angle. He has built a game called Peacemaker, which is all about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and is a strategy game that challenges the user to find a pathway to peace. It is really, really cool. He's really honest about the process of creating that and what he's learned throughout the process. So I encourage you to sit back and enjoy my interview with Eric Brown. so much for coming to my podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, so I want to start off by just giving you the opportunity to explain what Impact Games is and maybe where the idea came from. So Impact Games actually got started at Carnegie Mellon University in their Entertainment Technology Center as a graduate school project. The core concept behind the inception of it all was just it was the time when Grand Theft Auto was getting a lot of publicity in the news as sort of the the downfall of human civilization. That's a little extreme, but um, Hillary Clinton saying that video games were sort of the scourge on our, our youth and things like that. And we were both, well, a bunch of us there were sort of older gamers and, and understood that video games weren't just Grand Theft Auto and that there were lots of games created over the ages uh, that have educational value and sort of positive influences on children and education and just sort of growth. And so wanted to choose something to create to show that video games could be good the concept being, could we create something about a real-world issue that showed that video games sort of have a power beyond just um, the shoot-em-ups and things that were sort of so visible at the time. Um, Aussie's background is in Israeli. When we were thinking about subject matter, there would be something that would sort of really prove that you could go far with this was if we could make a game that was positive about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and something that serious that it would sort of show the, the depth that video games had. And a lot of the things we equated it to were you looked at what comic books went through and comic books got slammed for all of the sort of same reasons that they were dissolving the brains of our youth and things like that at some point. And then our speedway comes along and makes mouse and it wins a Pulitzer and it's sort of a very in-depth subject matter that really could have only been done through the metaphor of sort of graphic novel and things like that or television. And then you know, we're in Pittsburgh, so Mr. Rogers neighborhood and things like that. So every time there's some new medium, there's always going to be something that, they want to hold up about sort of the negativity of, of the ways that it's used and what those influences might be. And we were just looking at it that we really needed to, to do something to show, or at least at the time, explore whether it could be done. And that was the, the impetus for the start of 
Peacemaker, which then became Impact News. Gotcha. So uh, Peacemaker was the first game that you guys put out. We'll get into how that works and where the idea came from and all that. We mentioned Aussie was your co-founder, a partner for the first few years of the you know, building of this game. How did you guys find each other? What what was the process of you kind know, of realizing, hey, we could work together on this and you know, really make something cool? Yeah, well, I mean, we had the benefit of, and I think a lot of people, well, did and continue to choose CMU and the Entertainment Technology Center there for new media and sort of entertainment technologies because it's very project-based. So it was appealing to, to us and others, I think, because we were going to go there and actually work on real projects. It wasn't going to be research or things like that because we both had backgrounds in sort of art and design and, and creating things. So I think the program itself drew people like us to it. As we move forward, I think it was both interesting that we found the project interesting, um, that the project really took legs then because of just publicity we got and support. We went, and I think, you know, it's a good thing to do, especially if you're doing the type of subject that we were doing, um, went out of the world and got real world advisors. So people that were vested in the, the conflict and levels of government and nonprofits and things like that. So really the pressure to make impact games somewhat just came from the idea that we created this thing. We enlisted a lot of support from some people that the, the, the purpose behind it was very personal. And then we just felt that we couldn't let it die as sort of a, a half-finished project in the university. So then it just became a question of how do we start a company around this subject? Because it's, there's lots more game companies now and indie games is different than it was then. But can we do it? What does the business model look like? How do we raise funding to do it? Do we do it as a nonprofit or as a real business? So I'm, I'm interested in that process of we've built this game for the project that we're doing for school and we're ready to take this next step. We're talking to people about what the best route may be. What did you end up finding and what did those early months look like after the point in which you decided we're going to try to make this like we're going to we're going to try to make this a legit business. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is just being willing to constantly learn because we learned a lot in those periods, but Again, we had the benefit of doing it in the university. I mean, I've, I've helped people as advisors and things and, and seen lots more organizations pop up since just because entrepreneurialism startups are, are such a big deal now. There's a lot more support organizations out there. But really just, I mean, we were in an entrepreneurial business class, so they helped you build. I mean, for a lot of people in the class, it was a, a fictional business model just to learn the process of creating one. For us, it was something that we were actually trying to do. I think the interesting part for us was you know, it was a video game. So we had a product, we didn't have a service or something like that. So when you start looking at, they start questioning you because they want to see that sort of hockey stick growth model. What does one product look like when you extrapolate it into multiple products or a business or something that somebody could see long-term investment in? So we really had to change the concept of, we're just trying to get funding to make sure we can finish and release Peacemaker, which nowadays is sort of the, I guess, Kickstarter model where you can, there are avenues for just funding a one-off product without investors needing to look for long-term gains, they're going to do it in just that. Um, so for us, we had to sort of put together the pitch of a long-term studio model and how do we reincorporate the technology to create future titles and reuse the assets they're investing in and those types of things. So there's a lot of learning in just that part of looking at what you're coming to as a, a product developer and then learning the business side of what do you need to do to, to project that into a longer-term business if you're gonna look for investment. 
So that was one of the challenges for us is what does a product company look like for a game studio? How do you project that value? How is that beyond just a hit driven model? For us, it was the underlying technology of being able to reuse this sort of strategy game engine that allowed us to sort of portray that. Um, and I guess even before that to, to roll back for us, and I think some people, social good is a huge concept now in creating companies that have social good and double bottom line investment and all those kinds of Can you define double bottom line? Yeah, so saying that the mission of the company can be not just for profit, that there can be a social good component that is respected in the investment eyes and in the sort of success of the company equal to the, the profit line. And so that became a thing. I, I think a lot of times it gets convoluted in is the, the double bottom line mission really just a marketing ploy to say it's for good and has gives you into the market? And then how much are your investors really going to allow you to undercut your profit line to you know, increase distribution or put a product out there for free or whatever it might be that's going to increase that other mission objective? So those are interesting things. But for us at the time, since there wasn't as much of that or even investors or VCs that claim that that is sort of what they want in their portfolio, we spent a lot of time debating whether we should be a nonprofit or a for-profit. And I wish I had sort of a uh, rationale for a business reason why we chose one or the other. Um, but ours really came to when we were out running around, there's a lot of hurdles to starting a nonprofit. They're starting to lower some of those thresholds because more people want to involve sort of new business with these you know, a nonprofit arm of a for-profit business or something like that. But we really had a guy who came in and saw our sort of business pitch of there's this technology platform, we can create new titles on it, and said, why would we ever be, want to be a nonprofit and was willing to invest? And there was an avenue to money that was much faster in just creating a business because the, the hurdles of being a 501c3. And uh, so in the process of launching Peacemaker, did the idea for the game change much? How did the idea for the game change from inception to when the product was released for sale to the public? And can you just explain a little bit about what how Peacemaker works to portray the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Yeah, uh, I'd love to. I mean, the main thing for us was when it first started, it was just the concept and what does it look like? With Ossie's background and just sort of the history of the Israeli government versus the Palestinian Authority and things like that. The, the team started by building that side and that perspective and creating something where the win perspective. And so early on, we realized that uh, for a player, I mean, this is sort of game mechanics, for a player to feel like they had a satisfying game experience, they needed to have sort of a win condition. And in that, we needed to step it up just from sort of lowering a violence meter to really having a goal. And so that required that the product morph into having a two-state solution as the, the win condition. So I guess rolling back for the for anybody who knows nothing about it, it's a turn-based strategy game. So there's lots of them out there, civilization, things like that, where you can take an action, time passes, there's results, things like that. It's not sort of a real-time game where things are happening, you have to react really fast. It's more calculated in, in those types of things. A lot of these games are generally warfare games. So strategically, what will you do this turn? How will the other player react? And moving things on a board and win in those cases. Um, we sort of inverted that model to be about conflict resolution. So the goal wasn't to, to conquer the other side. It was to reach a peaceful solution. And I guess that's where I was saying this. You know, if you take the variable of violence in the world, the, the game originally was just to lower that and see how that felt and what actions you would have to take. And then we realized that to have it truly be a, a game, you would have to 
or have a satisfying experience, you would have to be able to win the game. And so what does that look like when you're not trying to conquer the other? Um, because obviously the game is called Peacemaker. It's, it's intended to have sort of a positive outcome and experience and sort of teach conflict resolution along the way. So that was one of the first things that sort of happened. Then as we thought about what the concept of the game was, it was really to play a perspective and sort of walk a mile in that person's shoes. So games are great for experiential learning and just sort of immersing yourself in some narrative or some role. And so ours was, what does it mean to immerse yourself in the role of the Palestinian president? And what would you do if that was your role? And so that was obviously great for teaching one perspective, but then how do you create a game about a conflict if you only show one side? So then we had to create sort of the second game, which was as Palestinian prime minister, so we, or Palestinian president. So you had the Israeli prime minister, and it was interesting for gameplay, but there was nothing there telling the other side of the narrative or what the experience for the Palestinian was. So we then had to create the other perspective. So you could play both roles or potentially the role that you're not sort of accustomed to taking the perspective of and learn what the issues are and learn what the complexities are for that perspective. So it became sort of two games in one over just sort of that product lifestyle. When we made the company, I mean, I'm happy to say that the people that we got to invest in us and, and what we were trying to do as a product didn't really influence what we did with the game. Like there was no pressure to, to make it somehow different than what our mission and, and vision was uh, to take it from that sort of proof of concept into a, a on the market product. So when you ended up launching it and it hit the market and it was greeted by the public, it's received multiple awards that we could, we could list. Uh, we'll list in the show notes for this episode, but it was generally received very well. What was that experience like? And when did you come to the realization or get the idea that we should be making a second game? Or were you already planning before that, that a second game will be coming down the pipe? Yeah, I mean, if we go back to our business model, the idea was that we do the first game, we get enough sales generated on that to fund the production of another title on, unfortunately, there's many global issues, you know, India, Pakistan, or North Korea, South Korea. I mean, pick or choose what we could have gone on to try and address. Um, the challenges were, and I guess the thing I run into with a lot of groups that sometimes I work with now is equating critical acclaim and financial success is not a one-to-one. The challenges that we saw then, and I think there's lots of ways to look at different markets, is distribution is is one of the biggest challenges, right? And actual conversion of sales. For us, we could get New York Times, Al Jazeera, all those things, our website would explode, but the actual conversion to a purchase was was very challenging. Um, Some of the things we faced then is distribution for games and digital products wasn't what it is now. There wasn't the sort of app stores and things like that that allowed really casual purchases. So we had to set up our own storefront. You had to sort of purchase through our store. People weren't accustomed to buying games and that nature and things like that. So while somebody, let's say 45-year-old, would come on the site, they'd hear the story on NPR, they'd think it's fascinating, but the barrier to them purchasing, they would just think that's a great concept. It's probably for somebody younger than me and we couldn't convert them into a sale. And I think that happens just in a lot of conversions is people can love a concept, but getting them to actually put down money is a whole nother thing. So we learned that lesson that it's great to get that. And it is some free marketing to some point, but the rest of the tail of that sales channel is, is just as critical. And at the time, it 
the indie success games that are out now is because I could hear that on you know this podcast, hopefully. And I can go to the app store and you know two seconds later with really no fear of putting my credit card in and buying online, which is something I don't do, or just you know, am I really gonna sit on my computer and play this game? Wherever I am, I can purchase that game for you know whatever it might be and, and be playing it and, and not invest or think it's for somebody else or dog tag it for later. So we ran into a bunch of those challenges. Everything beyond that was Microsoft casual games. I mean, a lot of the indie game and games sort of understanding that it can address serious issues has also matured a lot since we were there. And we were sort of at that cutting edge, which meant it was a great story, but the audience wasn't really there yet. And even the distribution to the extent that Microsoft casual games and a lot of places like Steam now um, love what we were doing. I'd have business meetings with them. They thought we were great. They really want us to succeed. But due to the political nature of what we were doing, they didn't see it as something they either A, could even put on their platform for fear of offending customers and or just didn't think it was right for their audience because their audience who now will get, buy a game like Papers, Please was really only interested in first-person shooters and things like that. So there was just sort of challenges all over that led to our initial plan of selling a bunch and things like that while we got the acclaim and the sort of support on the back end, the, the distribution wasn't there. So we had to rethink our whole business model and, and where the company was going to go to. So the second game called Play the News, explain how that is similar or different from Peacemaker and kind of where that idea came from. And then I'm also curious, you can answer it or I can uh, we can touch back on it later, is having built one game, the process of building a second game, how much easier was it having that experience, having some of the infrastructure already in place to get a second game off the ground? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm super jealous of people that are starting to get into all of this now just because we built ours from scratch. There was no Unity. There was no sort of tools that make a lot of this far easier in terms of just what platform to build it on, what infrastructure is already there to use as an engine. So our business model then of saying we're going to build this engine and then we can reuse it was much larger an investment in time, capital, and, and just sort of engineering. When we remit, when we are relaunching our mobile version, I mean, the time that we could have built it back then using something like Unity and access to all the distribution channels, we revamped the game in far less time or rebuilt it on this new technology way faster than we built the original game. Um, so I'm sorry, what was the... Uh, t talk about the Play the News game, yeah. where the idea came from, how it works, how it's different or similar to Peacemaker. So it sort of extends on the, what are the challenges of distribution at the time and converting sort of people that were maybe once gamers or not gamers into thinking that games are a good way to address current issues. And we thought, well, maybe we have to make it even more casual. So it takes less time and it sort of covers lots of issues because what if I just don't, I'm not interested enough in the Israeli Palestinian conflict to think that I should play this game? So we started thinking about the, the value that we were seeing and what people saw in Peacemaker was you know, the feedback loops, the fact that you're playing with real news and seeing the consequences was very powerful. And people thought that it gave them in a very short period of time a way deeper understanding of a current event news cycle than they were getting from a normal article. So we went back to the drawing board and we thought, well, um, you know, there's fantasy sports, there's all these things that with casual interactions draw people very deeply into content. So what does that look like for news and how does that interaction look compared to trying to reuse the same type of interface that distilled, you know, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, a very you know, complex issue into a very accessible and playable experience. 
Um, and so that's what Play the News became. Um, so ours was, it was sort of fantasy news or, I mean, in theory, it is gamification of news, which is something that I'm not a big fan of a lot of the applications of gamification and things like that. I feel like our use of it there was a little bit more relevant or it fit the, the solution that we were looking for. Why, why aren't you a fan of it in other uh, scenarios? I think a lot of times it's layered over things that don't play into serial content like that or in those badging systems or rewarding interaction in a way that you're using a, a stick or you're cutting up content just to create those sort of feedback loops. Where in a news cycle, it made a lot of sense that we're only getting a little piece of information at a given point and we want you to engage across a lot of content. So it sort of melded well into um, what we were trying to do without really sort of forcing it into it just for the sake of thinking that it was gonna help motivate people to do something they never wanted to do in the first place. So that was somewhat unfortunate. So as Peacemaker continues to exist, what does the maintenance look like on a product like that on a week-to-week basis? What are you, you know, there's, I think there's kind of the idealized vision sometimes of a game like this where you just set it up and it just sits there and, you know, gets sold and makes money and there isn't really anything involved. Uh, what's the reality of maintaining the product and continuing to sustain it? Peacemaker, I guess the, the story there for now is that we sort of sat on the sidelines and just sort of let it be dormant for a minute. And the reason that we're coming back out with it is that those distribution channels have so radically changed that we think there's sort of a, a different environment and a different audience out there that is going to change our ability to, to reach a broader audience. I mean, it really is that model of if you create a product, you can just put it on the shelf and Peacemaker sort of no difference. You can put it in an app store and even better than when we were doing it before, you don't even have to manage your own store. So collect the checks from the distribution channels and those types of things. Uh, the reality is obviously that marketing and community engagement is a huge part of anything. So we get lots of mail assess, I think more so because of the, the nature of our content from people responding to the, the content wanting to become engaged, wanting to know how they can use it educationally, what they can do with it in the community and things like that. And so obviously you have to maintain those relationships with your customers um, and things like that. We did a deal long ago when we were doing the first round of release of Peacemaker with the Perez Center to give away 100,000 copies in Israel and the Palestinian territories. So I think for, for a product more like ours, that not just sitting there and waiting for customers to come for you or spending it on traditional marketing or, or things like that is that a part of our company is still to support community groups and, and educators and things like that to, to make sure the product is supported and, and used in the ways that for that sort of double bottom line of the social good of the product that we're not just sort of a, a put it up there and then and then wait and see what happens engage beyond that and i think even for casual products now it's something that's expected that you engage with your customer on a much greater level. So another thing that's been a more recent development is that you are also working to consult with other game creators, game builders, uh, to share some of the expertise that you've gleaned over the last decade to help them be more successful. Uh, what has that process looked like and what have you really been able to bring to the table to the people you're consulting with? Yeah, so I do it on a bunch of different levels. Um, usually I'll come in because someone has sort of hit an edge or they're falling behind on a, a 
production level or from a technology standpoint or things like that. I think the one that seems to be the most needed is there's general, there's a lot of great developers out there. There's a lots of great visionaries and things like that. Um, when you get into sort of technology development and I guess there's lots of debates, you can read lots of places over there, but um, the role of sort of a producer or a project manager in those places. So a lot of it's just the process and projects, product management and, and feature creep, or how do we set what the release product is going to look like? How do we set a minimal viable product? How do we get all of the teams communicating between art and technology and things like that? And it was sort of one of those ones where I wasn't sure how valuable I was in that, but I think the background of working on multidisciplinary teams is something that not a lot of people in sort of startup early product development have done. And so you see a lot of times where the technology is meandering and they can't set sort of goals or, or cut the product short so that they can get something out there. The design team isn't communicating well with technology. So they design things that are far more difficult than they need to be for the technology team to develop. So I sort of done a lot of work in that role of just coming in and streamlining communications and, and setting um, achievable goals so that product ship timelines don't just keep creeping out and things like that. And it's never, the fault of the team in most cases that you see it it's just a fault. the idea that they they want it to be perfect they have a hard time setting those things and then they have a hard time communicating between those teams and then you know, problems can just continue to crop up for sure that's a that's a common theme we've talked about in previous episodes the idea that art is never per complete it's merely abandoned you you at some point you have to ship it it's never going to be that perfect thing that goes out so i definitely appreciate that I mean, I would want up that one and say that one of the cycles that I've sort of started to make sure that happens is the design team will design something before you even allow the, the management investors, whoever is above that team, to think it's a great idea and that that's what they want to go with. Have that sit down between the art team and the technology team. Have the technology team help explain to the art team what is easy and hard to build because you might find ways to get the same outcome that is going to be far easier for them to build. And if you can do that sort of often and early, um, you don't end up, I mean, you can try to avoid over-engineered solutions that if our team had just known the, the restrictions of the technology or how you were building it, they probably could have come up with a, a much easier solution to engineer that accomplished the same exact thing. I want to start wrapping up here. Be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Uh, before we tell people how to connect with you, where to find Peacemaker, and you issue the personal challenge to the audience. Is there anything that I didn't give you a chance to say? No, and I appreciate the chance to talk to everybody. I mean, I could sort of go on ad nauseum on a bunch of different issues, obviously, because I'm passionate about both the product space and just sort of the game space and the games for good space and lots of different things. But I hope what we did choose to talk about was helpful as well. Absolutely. I, I definitely think it'll be helpful for listeners out there. If they want to learn, if you want to learn more about Eric, uh, his information will be linked to in the show notes at goingdeepwitharon.com slash podcast. But if someone wants to do it right now, uh, Eric, what is the best place to find you in the digital world? Yeah, I mean, our website, so impactgames.com or peacemakergame.com, um, all of those supports, I mean, we're a pretty small group, so they're all going to come to me, but um, you can contact me direct at Eric Brown at Impact Games, and I'm happy to, to talk about uh, anything. Cool. Like I said, that will be linked to... Uh, going to give you the mic one last time to issue a personal challenge to the audience. Yeah, I was, sort of, I, I was debating between two. 
One was um, I'm a firm believer in keeping in touch with people that you worked with that you just enjoyed working with and making sure you don't let those die and um, people that you respect in the community of whatever you want to do. So the, the strength of advisory boards, both personally and in companies and, and looking for mentors. And I saw on your website that you're a proponent of coffee offing with people. And uh, so I, I always challenge people to go out and whether it was somebody that was a professor or somebody that was a coworker that you respected um, to keep having those coffees because those relationships can, can be so fruitful down the line in terms of just career advice or maybe you want to work with them again or things like that. Um, so I love challenging people to, to think about their Rolodex and not just keep the Rolodex sort of sitting there waiting for the day, but every once in a while just go and catch up with somebody and find out what they're doing because it could be a great job opportunity, a great chance to collaborate or things like that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that for sure. So go out there, touch base with someone that you haven't in a while and keep those connections flowing. We just went deep with Eric Brown of Impact Games. Hope everyone out there has a great day. Once again, that was Eric Brown. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone out there listening, for tuning in to another episode. If you want to make sure that you stay up to date on every episode as it comes out, be sure to subscribe. Hit the subscribe button, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher. If that is too much of a commitment for you, head over to goingdeepwitharen.com and opt in to the newsletter sign up. The newsletter comes out once a month and in, along with some of the top links from the internet and other recommendations includes the best episode of the month, the one that listeners found the most valuable and helpful for them. So a little bit less of a commitment, just one email a month, but either way, I appreciate you listening and being involved and uh, hope you'll tune into the next one. Take care.